Son bought redemption. God the Spirit sought or is seeking redemption for whosoever will. And thank God I got it or I called it by faith one day uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for all the Lord has done for us and I'm glad He paid that ultimate sacrifice so we could be saved. You know, we're not here today uh, to worship a man or a person here, but uh, we are here to worship the Lord, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords being the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you came in for that purpose today, I want you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter number 17. It's where the Lord has got our heart again today in the life of David. And I sure hope it will be a help and a blessing to you. I would probably encourage you, uh, this is not going to be a message in its entirety this morning. We'll probably finish up tonight if the Lord will allow us to, or uh, and who knows, the Lord may change our direction. But 
I don't think I'm going to be able to preach all this this morning. I just want to give you a few thoughts today that I hope will be an encouragement and help to you in the life of David. Man, it's been such a blessing to me as I've preached on David through the years, but I've never really preached on some of these thoughts that we've been looking at as you go back through. It's amazing. You can read the Bible over and over again. The meaning never does change, but God will speak to you uh, differently. Sometimes you'll see some things that you had not seen before, and that's certainly how the Lord has sort of touched my heart as I went back through the study of David. I don't know, this is probably the fourth or fifth message on the life of David. I hope it's been an encouragement thus far. But when you think about David, as we pick up reading here in 1 Samuel chapter number 17, David has just slain the giant that everybody was afraid of. You'd say, man, the battle's over. Surely the battle and the war is over. That giant has fell and, and Israel has routed all of the Philistines. Surely the battle will be over. But really, in reality, the battle is just beginning. It's just beginning when the giant falls, the battle has just begun. If I could preach on a thought, that's probably what I'm preaching on this morning. The battle has just begun. A great victory has just happened, and David has slain that giant that everybody in Israel was afraid of, including Saul, who who stood head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. He was a giant himself, but he was afraid to face Goliath, David, had God on him and God in him, and he went down and he conquered and slayed that giant. Remember, he slung that stone, and that's an important note for you and I. You may not face a Goliath in life, literally, but there's going to be some giants you're going to face, and we better get this principle, you'll never slay it until you sling it. You'll never slay it until you sling it. And thank God David was walking by faith, and that's the same thing you and I must do. But notice here in our text, we'll start reading in verse number 54 of 1 Samuel 17. Again, preaching on this thought today with the life of David, the battle has just begun. The Bible said in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 54, And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. In other words, David took Goliath's armor and put it in his tent. Verse 55. And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said unto Abner, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. And the king said, Inquire thou whose son the stripling is. And as David returned from the slaughter to the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son art thou, thou young man? And David answered, I am the son of thy servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now notice chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, verse 1. And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would not let, let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan striped himself, stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David in his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. Verse 5 said, And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. It came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, 
and with instruments of music. Now notice verse 7. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? Verse 9 says this, And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. Now let's pray, Father. It's about in your presence, God, again today, Lord, saying thank you, Lord, for the price that was paid for our freedom in Christ today, freedom of sin. God, I thank you for that power that's still available to whosoever will. God, if there's one here listening today or listening by way of the CD minister or what have you, radio, that's unsaved, unprepared for eternity, God, may today be the day of salvation. God, I pray that you'd honor your word now as we expound upon it. I pray that you'd give us liberty. I pray that you'd speak to every heart. Lord, help us to glean some things from this passage that will make us stronger as believers. Lord, I pray that conviction would fall through somebody that's lost, meet every need. God, will be careful to give you thanks and praise for what you do. I ask, Lord, that you'd remove every hindrance, every distraction from this place. God, move in a special and a unique way. If there ever was a service that the devil loved like to get in, it'd be this and right here. Lord, I pray that you'd honor your word, honor your servant. Help me to decrease now that Jesus may be increased and lifted up. We're going to give you thanks, and we're going to give you praise for what you do for we ask these things in Jesus. Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. We've read this text here out of 1 Samuel chapter 17. Most of the familiarity was in the previous parts of chapter 17. We think about the as David goes up against Goliath with that sling and those stones and the script and the shepherd's bag and that staff that he had, those five instruments that God used. And if you were to go to West Point and, and you were to try to get a military strategy to face a giant, they'd have said, well, man, you're getting ready to commit suicide. That's not real good to go down there against that enemy. But David David went with the hand of God on his life and the power of God. That ought to help us as believers. Listen, thank God for the technology we have. Thank God for the intelligence that we have today, the understandings, the studies. But we still got to have the power of God on our life to be successful. It don't matter if it's a preacher. It don't matter if it's a singer. It doesn't matter if it's a Sunday school teacher, a vacation Bible school worker, or whether it's a husband or a wife. You and I need the touch of God on our life. That's what makes all the difference in the world. As you look at the Word of God, you'll see where the Spirit of God was removed from Saul, but it was placed on David. And that was the greatest difference between the success and failure of David versus uh, Saul was the fact that the hand of the Lord was upon him. And as we look at this, you would say that, hey, David has just killed the giant. Surely the battle is over. But in reality, the battle had just really began to, or just has begun. Now, we've looked at the adolescence of David, and this sort of still his years, but when you get to his adult years, he spent a vast majority of those years running from Saul. Saul gets after him, and we see very early on in chapter 18 that things were good between Jonathan and, and Saul and David, but something changes due to a song that was sung. As we just said, hey, David is, or Saul is slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Envy begins to set up in Saul, and they were never uh, on the same page again. Saul was constantly after David. In other words, it didn't get any better than chapter 18 and verse number 2 when the Bible said, and Saul took him, that, that's David, that day and would not let him go no more home to his father's house. It never got any better, Brother Harold, for David and Saul that after chapter 18 and verse number 2. 
Things begin to change. The battle had really just begun to begun in the life of David. There are several ways we could break down this passage. And I'm going to give you sort of a shotgun outline, and I'm going I'm to preach a couple of them this morning. But I want you to get this. If we don't finish up, if the Lord will allow us to, we'll, we'll finish it up tonight. But when you think about it, if you could jot down, when I go through a scripture... I always ask God to speak to me. How can I have a message? If God can't speak to me, how can I speak to you? So God spoke to my heart in several ways. And when I go down, a lot of times, I, I'm all, I guess it's just the preacher mentality, is making out an outline. It can be outlined several different ways. We, we, there's three main characters in the passages that we've read for the most part. There's David. There's Saul, and there's Jonathan, which was the oldest son of Saul. You could preach, and you could lay this out and label this. We see the identity of David. Really, he was in obscurity, and in one day, he became a celebrity in all reality. So we see the identity of David. We could also say the loyalty of Jonathan as his heart was knit with King David there in chapter number 18. Although David is not king yet, he's already been anointed to be king by Samuel in, in his father's house in chapter number 16 in 1 Samuel. So you could, you could list the identity of David. He was in obscurity, but now he's come to the forefront. He's basically become a celebrity. I mean, he's carrying the head of the giant in his hand. Everybody, nobody knew who David was before, but now everybody knows who David is. So we see his identity. But then you see the loyalty of Jonathan. He was heir apparent unto the throne, but he showed loyalty unto the Lord's anointed. But then we could say this about Saul. You could see the hostility of Saul. According to verse number 9, from that point on, Saul eyed David with, with, an, with the idea that, man, he's going to destroy him. He's going to try, he tried destruction. He tried deception. Numerous times he, he made attempts on David's life. But it could be a, the, the, the outline or the structure of this text. You could say the identity of David, the loyalty of Jonathan, and then the hostility of Saul. But I'm not going to preach on that. I just jotted those down as I was thinking about this text. But when you think about it, I'm going to break it down this way. You can look at the return. The return, the return of what? The end of chapter number 17, David makes a triumphant return into Jerusalem right after the battle with Goliath. Then we see the relationship. Not only in the first four verses of chapter 18, the relationship between David and Jonathan, but also in Saul. Again, he had a good relationship. Saul wouldn't even let him go back home uh, after he'd come back and he had conquered that giant. But then not only do we see the return and, and the relationship, but also the reaction of the people. What was the reaction of the people? We just read about it. The ladies came and they had this song on their heart. and They said, hey, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. The reaction of the people. David comes from obscurity to nobody knows his name now. He's become a celebrity. But then you see the rift. In verse number 8 and 9, Saul had a desire because envy moved in his heart. David was getting the praise and Saul aspired to have it. And envy set up 
on him. But as we look at this passage, I want to break down a couple of these first two points with the return and the relationship of the Lord will help us for the next few minutes. And I don't believe the Lord's going to let me preach all this because, again, y'all can't stand it. I, I don't think I can either. But these first couple points, I hope that they'll fall on, on, on good, fertile soil and help us, number one, in our Christian life. But, again, if you're not saved, I believe God can speak to your heart as well. We'll develop that, hopefully with the help of the Lord. But the battle's just begun in David's life. But notice, as he returns, now imagine this. Brother Brandon, I, I, sometimes I visualize this. Here's David. He comes back from the battlefield. And after, after the champion of the Philistines falls, all of Israel, man, they get, they get energized. And they go and they rout the Philistine army. I mean, literally, they did. And they're coming back in. But David does not come back into Jerusalem empty-handed. He's got something in his head. As he returns, there's three things that he's got, Brother Wayne. Number one, Brother Kevin, he's got some evidence. He's got some evidence. He's got a trophy. What is a trophy? And this may, this may seem a little gross, but here he's dragging a head around. And it's the head of the giant. You say, well, I just don't agree with that. Hey, this, this old giant was the one that defied the God of the army and God and the armies of Israel. And David didn't want to, he couldn't stand for it, so he cut his head off. And he's dragging this trophy around everywhere. Now, there's a lot of folks go deer hunting, and I know some of you, you, you want to do the pictures, and maybe you mount that deer, and, and you put it up, and it shows as a trophy. Some of you go fishing, man, you pick up that big old bass, I know, during the chosen fishing tournament, and, and they, they take pictures of these fish, and you show off your trophy. Well, David comes back in as he returns into Jerusalem. He's got some evidence. It's not a fish. It's not a deer. Hey, it's a giant that for 40 days has stood and defied God and the armies of Israel. But David comes back into town, and he's dragging this trophy around. So he's got some evidence as he returns. Not only has he got evidence, he's also got some equipment. Notice what the Bible said in verse Number 54, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. There's the evidence. But notice the equipment that he's got. But he put his armor in his tent. Now, David went down with five things. We gather that from chapter number 17. Again, that's a preacher's dream outline. It's all found in one verse. There's five things that he had. He had a staff. He had a, he had a shepherd's bag. He had a script. He had five smooth stones, and he had a sling. All of them started with S in our King James Bible. And what an outline. That, that's what he had. But he goes up against this, this great uh, uh, armor-bearing giant with the helmet, with the breastplate, with the spear, and with the sword. When David conquered him, not only does he come back into Jerusalem with evidence being his head, but he comes back in with, Saul, with, with uh, Goliath's equipment. Now, later on in chapter number 21 and verse number 9, the sword of Goliath ends up in the city of Nob, N-O-B. And that was just north, a few miles north of Jerusalem. It was a place where priests inhabited. That's where Ahimelech had protected David. And David asked for something. And Ahimelech said, hey, in 1 Samuel 21 verse number 9, he said, the only thing here is the sword of the giant. And David said, there ain't none like that. Let me have it. So he gives him that sword. But he comes back in with evidence of a great victory. He's got the trophy in his hand. Then he comes with equipment. He puts all that armor of the giant in his tent. But not only does he come back into Jerusalem as he returns with evidence and with equipment, but he comes back with an engagement. 
He said, what do you mean? Well, his house is getting ready to grow. Why is that? We go back, go back, flip over a page probably in 1 Samuel 17. Remember when the Goliath came down and he's calling everybody out and everybody's afraid to go? Well, the king, Saul, had come up with an idea. Hey, the man that will go down and fight and conquer this man, he said, I'm going to give you my daughter to wed. Now, notice what your Bible said in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 25. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up, and it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king, that being Saul, will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. See, when David comes with the evidence in his hand, he's the one that killed the giant. He comes with the equipment of Goliath. Not only does he come with evidence and equipment, he comes here with an engagement. Because he's the one that has slew the giant. So now he's entitled to the daughter of Saul, which was Mirab. Now, look over in chapter 18 because Saul reneged on this after David come back. That was the conditions. All he had to do was slay the giant and he could be given Saul's daughter's hand in marriage. But that changed. Notice in chapter 18 and verse 17. And Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter Merib, her will I give thee to wife, only be thou valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. You see, Saul's already add, adding unto what he's already promised. He said, listen, whoever kills the giant, man, you can have my daughter. Now, he says in verse 17, if you'll be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battle. For Saul said, let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. Now, you read on a little bit later. Uh, Saul continues to renege on this situation. Merib is given to another man, and David ends up getting Michael in the end. But David's thought was, man, I'm going to have him killed because of envy that is set in him. So keep in mind, when David returns into Jerusalem, he comes with three things. He's got the evidence in his hands of Goliath. He's got the equipment of Goliath, and he puts it in his tent. He comes with with an engagement. He's going to be the king's son-in-law. Because he's done what the king has asked him to do. Now, a lot of folks look at this and, and they say, Well, man, I don't understand why. How did Saul not know who David was? Because if you read chapter 16, let me help you right here with this. In chapter number 16, we understand that, that David becomes Saul's armor bearer. He comes in from the field and he plays on the harp. And I believe he's acquainted somewhat with Saul. But Saul don't, don't really remember or know who he is or who is who his father is. Why would Saul ask who his father is? Well, I just read it to you there in chapter number 17 and verse 25. This is what Saul said he would do for the one that killed the giant. He said the king will enrich him with the great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Saul wanted to know, all right, who is this man? And Abner, which was the general of Saul's army, he didn't know who he was. Why is that? Again, David was basically in obscurity. He's been his whole life out there on the hillside tending his father Jesse's uh, sheep. He's out there doing his own business. Nobody knows him. Abner don't have a clue. Saul said, hey, who is this little stripling running down through here? And, and Abner says, king, I don't know who it is. Well, why did he ask? Because of verse 58, Saul said to him, whose son art thou, thou young man? And David answered, I am the son of thy servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, the reason Saul wanted to know that 
was so if there was any debts, if there was any, anything at all, that house would be free. It would be canceled out because of the promise that Saul had made to the one that had slain Goliath. So I want you to see the return. He's got the evidence in his hand. That's crystal clear of the giant. He's got the equipment of Goliath, and he's put it in his tent. He's got an engagement to be engaged unto Saul's daughter. It ended up not being Merib, but it ended up being Michael because evidently some time had elapsed, and Saul began to add conditions. Well, if you'll be valiant for me, if you'll go out and you'll fight the Lord's battles, then you can have my daughter. Well, notice this second thing. This is what I want to deal for just a minute, and I hope it will help us. The relationship. You see the return as he comes back. But notice the relationship. And we'll look at these first four verses here of chapter number 18. Notice our text. The Bible said, And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul. So David's come back into Jerusalem. He's got this evidence. He's got the equipment. He's got this engagement. And he's talking unto Saul. And Abner was there. And evidently Jonathan was there as well. And he understands. And please get this. There was more said than what is recorded in verse number 54 to verse number 58. I don't believe that's all that was discussed as they were there together. Saul probably said, and you might say, well, you're looking into the text. But think about it. David comes back in. He's got this. He's got the giant in his head, in his hand. No doubt they had a discussion, and Jonathan is sitting back, and he's listening to this man. David talked to his father, the king, and something begins to to change, and Jonathan has probably seen him maybe in the courts of the Lord, maybe when he was playing the harp, but he didn't really know him on a personal basis. But now he gets to listen unto David, which was the Lord's anointed. Remember, Saul, the Spirit of the Lord, has been taken off of him. And you can tell the difference when the Spirit of God moves off and when it moves on because the Spirit will bear witness. But old David, he's got the Spirit of the Lord upon him. There's something different, and there's a communion between Jonathan and David and there's a relationship that begins to bloom here in chapter number 18 again we notice it came to pass verse 1 when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul and Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house so it that's as good as it's going to get with Saul's relationship with David right there in verse number 2 but Jonathan and David continue to, to bear fruit and continue to progress. Because look at verse 3. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant or an agreement because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. You see, the battle has just begun. He comes home with a return with this evidence and the equipment and the engagement but now there we see the relationship of David and Jonathan. Now there's some contrast. I don't know if you've realized this. You probably have. But there's a great contrast between David and Jonathan. You say, what do you mean? Well, David was the son of a farmer. Jonathan was the son of a king. You read your Bible, David was the youngest of eight children. He was the youngest of eight sons. There he was, the youngest but Jonathan was the oldest. Jonathan was expected as the oldest. He was heir apparent unto the throne. Everybody expected that Jonathan, he's the prince. He's got the princely robe and the attire on. Everybody's expecting him to be king. But David is chosen by God to be king. There's a lot of differences 
between Jonathan and David. Oh, but there's some similarities as well. These two had the touch of God. These two would have stood out in their generation. Brother Brandon, Brother David, and Brother Jonathan would have stood out in the generation in which they lived. As Jonathan sat back, he's already over some of the armies of Saul because him being the oldest son and he being the princely, the prince that's coming on the scene, heir apparent under the throne. He's sitting there as he's listing as David returns from Jerusalem. They get acquainted and he listens to the words that are spoken. A man after God's own heart is speaking unto King Saul whom the Spirit of the Lord has removed off of and the one that's speaking is David who the Spirit of the Lord has anointed and touching him and helping him and Jonathan said, wait a minute man there's something different. There's a Sweet communion that my spirit's bearing witness with. There's something different about this man. You think about these two fellows. They both were committed to the Lord. We're introduced to Jonathan back at chapter 14. I encourage you to go back and look at this. 1 Samuel 14 verse 6. And this is the words of Jonathan. It may be that the Lord will work for us for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. That's the words of Jonathan. In other words, when he went out into battle, he didn't look and say, all right, how many men we got? How many swords we got? How many chariots we got? How many horses we got? How many spears? How many bowing He said, Lord, we're going to have to have your touch. Doesn't matter how few, how many, Lord, we know if it's your will, you can give us the victory. That was the mentality of this warrior and this prince by the name of Jonathan. Also, in chapter 14, verse number 12 of 1 Samuel, he said, come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. That's the way that Jonathan looked at things. He put God first in, in, in everything. Even when he went to battle, he relied and depended upon the Lord. Well, what about David? How did he do? Well, just look there in chapter 17, verse 45, as he faces Goliath. This was the words of David. Then said David... To the Philistine, thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts and the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. David said, you come against me against, against these material things, but I've got some spiritual weapons on my side, the God of heaven. Now, there was a communion. Jonathan depended on the Lord. David depended on the Lord and I shared just a moment ago, Romans 8, 16 says this, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I don't believe it took Jonathan long to know that, you know, David, as he comes in, he's carrying that. I don't believe David said, look at what I did. I think he said, man, look at what God did. And I believe Jonathan seen that, and he said, man, uh, that's a man That's a man after my own heart. Boy, I've depended on the Lord, and this man is depending on the Lord. And evidently the Lord probably spoke to him and said, hey, that's the Lord's anointed. That's the one. That's not your father's going to be on the throne. You're not going to be on the throne, Jonathan. But David is the one that will be on the throne. Now, there's three things that were taking place between Jonathan and David. There was some knitting, there was some kneading, and there was some knowing. Say, what are you talking about? Well, they were knit together, the Bible said. There was a knitting. Notice what your Bible said in verse 3 or verse 1. And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit. The soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. That word knit, the original Hebrew, basically means to bind and to tie and to join together. From that point on, after Jonathan had heard the discussions around his father and 
around Abner and, and around David. Their hearts were knit together. It was binded. They were joined together. And there was a great friendship that, that was established. So there was some kneading. There was also some kneading. And when I'm talking about kneading, I'm talking about K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G. Just like kneading dough and all those ingredients are entwined together. That's what happened between Jonathan and David. Look at verse number 3. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. So there was some kneading, this relationship. There was some kneading, K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G. There was also some knowing. Knowing on Jonathan's end. What, what, what do you mean by knowing? Well, I believe Jonathan knew some things. I've already said I believe God revealed to him that there's something different about this man that just slew that giant down there. He didn't go down with a sword, didn't go down with a spear, but he went in the name of the Lord and probably rehearsed that. He's got the evidence in his hand. He's got the equipment in his tent. He's got the engagement of his sister. He said, man, there's something different about this fella. And I believe Jonathan knew. Look at verse number 4, what he does. And Jonathan stripped, not, not stripped somebody else. He stripped himself. That's important. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe. What robe? That princely robe. He's next in line, Brother Harold. He's heir apparent under the throne. But he's taking that off of himself. And he's putting it on David. Why? Because there's some knowing. He knows there, there's a communion between him and David. And God's reminded him that, hey, this is going to be the king. No doubt about it. I believe that. And the Bible said he, 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 he stripped himself of the robe that was upon him. And he gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword, to his bow, and to his girdle. Here's a man that is a mighty man of valor. He's a seasoned man, probably several years older than David. Is that this? But a lot, of, a lot of times, try to folks try to portray the try to portray that these were just two young young teenagers. Getting on. I believe uh, you look at the timeline. I believe uh, Jonathan could have been twenty or thirty years older than David was. But regardless, he knows as he sees him that he takes off his robe and puts it on David. And there, there, there's a there's an important thing here that I think you and I need to need to grasp and. And need to get a hold of. Jonathan displayed several things that I believe you and I must display. You may not ever meet a King David, but you might meet a King Jesus. Because, see, David was the anointed one. You know what Messiah means? That means the anointed one. You know who the Messiah is? That's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only anointed one. He's the only way for you and I to stand right and to have a right relationship between us and God is that sacrifice that he made. They just sang about the only thing he bought was me, but thank God that was enough. He paid that price. Listen, we wouldn't redeem with silver and gold received by tradition from your fathers with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. First Peter chapter 1, verse number 8. 18 and 19 lets us know that and thank God the Lord Jesus loves you and I. He can forgive us of all of our sin. He is the anointed one but if you want to go to heaven you're going to have to go God's way. You can't go your way. You can't necessarily go your mom your daddy's way. You better go the Bible way and that's through and by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't stutter when he said John 14 6. He said I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The early church was preaching Acts 4 verse number 12. Neither is there salvation any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. You may never meet a David, 
I believe God will deal with your heart at some point or the other. How are you going to respond to the anointed one? How did Jonathan respond to the anointed one? He, he showed, he done several things. But basically, he, 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 he showed some selflessness by taking off what was precious to him and putting it on the anointed one. Showed some sacrifice. Oh, he's heir apparent. There's great things on his horizon. There's some great things that's going to be in his future. But you know what he did? He sacrificed all that for the anointed one. <laughs> Selflessness, sacrifice, and surrender. He done it willfully, giving what he had unto the anointed one. I'd like to close with this, this thought. I understand this is application. I understand the text. I understand the context. I've tried to share that with you, but there's a great application here. When we're confronted with the anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be confronted. What, what, what are some things we need to strip off? Stay with me now. The Bible said Jonathan stripped off the robe, something that was precious to him. What's holding you back this morning? And this goes to the lost man and the saved man. If you're here today and you're lost, what keeps you from getting saved? It could be, well, and I think this is a big factor. This is a big factor for me. What will people think? Well, I'm telling you this, honey. Who cares what people think? This church loves you. I can tell you that. But again, it ain't a drop of the buck to how God loves you. And I don't care who it is, whether it's a boyfriend, a girlfriend, whether it's a mom or a dad, whether it's a son or a daughter. It makes no difference. It's a grandma or grandpa. It don't make no difference. If you ain't right with God, don't you care about what somebody says? You get that thing settled. Get it nailed down today. Strip off that stuff of fear of what somebody says. Then there's others that think, well, you know, I, I, I've done too many things wrong, preacher. You don't know my background. You don't know what I've done. Listen, I don't care what you've done. I'm telling you, on the authority of the Word of God, regardless of what you've done, you can be forgiven through a personal relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But you go out to strip off that doubt of thinking, well, I don't know if God can forgive me or not because He can. He just stripped that off. What about us that are saved? There's some of you say, Preacher, I'm already saved. You know, there's still some things. The battle's just begun. <laughs> there's some things in order for us to be what God wants us to be. There's some things we've got to strip off. Those things that might be precious to us. Wasn't that long ago, Sister Savannah's coming. I preached on the message. I don't remember which one it was, but I talked about some keys. God don't want just one key to your life. He wants every key to your life. To the, to the, the most prominent, to the hidden things. He wants a key to everything, every area of our life. What about you, marriage life? Maybe that's something you need to take off and give to the Lord. Maybe you try to handle it on your own. You say, man, my, my, I have no idea. Maybe some my marriage is, is not what it needs to be. Well, you can be part of the problem. You can be part of the solution. Give it unto him. He wants every department of your life. Jonathan surrendered, submitted, selfless, sacrificed what was precious unto him and gave it. Unto the anointed one. You and I need to do the same thing, whether it's the key to our marriage life. What about your dating life? Well, preacher, I, I'm trying my best. I, I'm, a, I, you know, I, I'm trying my best to do this, that. Listen, give that key unto the Lord. Surrender it. It ain't up to you. It ought to be up to Him. 
See, there's a lot of areas. Lord, I, I'll trust you right here, but let, let, me have, let me have my marriage life. Let me have my dating life. Let me have my career life. Let me have my financial life. Oh, Lord, no, don't get on my, don't get on my financial side, Lord. Listen, he wants us all. He wants it all. Our recreational life, our calendar, he wants it. He deserves it. He's worth it. Because he, he surrendered for, he surrendered his will so we could be saved. We have a trouble in the submitting department, in the surrendering department. But you know the greatest key to victory. If you went to West Point again and you asked them what's the key to, to victory, they wouldn't say that the white flag of surrender would be the key to victory, but it is in a Christian life. You want victory in your life? That's when you raise up that white flag of that area of your life that you hadn't submitted, you hadn't surrendered unto the Lord. You're spitting and you're sputtering through life. And you may come to church on Sunday, maybe Sunday night, maybe even Wednesday, and you might put a smile on your face, but in and around you, it's crumbling. The walls are coming down. And it could just be that you have not submitted yourself and surrendered every area of your life unto the anointed one. God wants it this morning. You see, the battle's just begun David and his relationship with Jonathan. I see a clear application for you and I. As Jonathan approached the anointed one, he willingly surrendered and submitted everything that was precious unto him unto the Lord. Boy, that's what you and I need to be. So It's untelling. It's untelling, Brother Brandon. What folks that are totally surrendered and totally, totally committed. And I'm talking about your marriage life, your, your, your relation life, your, your financial life, your career life. All of that. If you'll surrender it unto the Lord, you'd be amazed at what God could do with your life. As we stand all over the house, heads are bowed and eyes are closed, let's pray. Folks already coming, let's pray together. Father, I love you, Lord, and I thank you for the opportunity. God, one more time and stand and proclaim the truth of your word. Now, Father, you have helped me in this area. Looking at the life of David and Jonathan and Saul, there's some principles that we can gain. Lord, I pray for that one today that's struggling. There's some that feel like they can't do a thing. Lord, I'm reminded we can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth us. God, I pray today for that one that may be lost. Somebody sitting in their seat afraid of what somebody's going to say. God, help them to see Lord, if they're lost and they're on their way to hell, but Jesus, you paid the price that they could be set free. God, I pray that you draw them by conviction of the Holy Ghost today. If they're not saved, I pray for every child of God. God, help me on personal life. Lord, to surrender not just part, but all, everything unto you. Lord, my finances, marriage, Lord, our everything that we have. God belongs to you. Help us to surrender that, those things that are precious, our time, our talent, and our treasure. God, I pray that you do a work in all of us. Lord, we'll be careful to give you thanks, give you praise for what you do if we ask these things in Jesus' name. Hello, friends. This is Brian Pondexter, the pastor of Faith Community Baptist Church, located at 2216 Hiddings Road in East Bend, North Carolina. We're so grateful to have you listening to our CD ministry that's been provided as an outreach of our church. It's our desire and focus at Faith Community Baptist Church to preach and teach the whole counsel of God to a lost and dying world, to equip the saints of God for service, and to encourage the elderly and shut-ins who cannot attend services due to physical ailments. We meet every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Sunday school 
for all ages. And our Sunday school hour is followed by our worship service at 11 a.m. with old-fashioned singing and preaching from the Word of God. We meet back every Sunday night at 6 p.m. for our worship service. And every second Sunday night of each month, we have what's called an eat and meet service. After our 6 p.m. service, we gather in the fellowship hall for food and fellowship. On Wednesdays, we meet back at the church for our midweek worship service with choir singing and preaching again from God's holy word. Our ladies prepare a meal each Wednesday prior to our service from 5.30 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. I give you and your family a cordial invitation to be with us at any or all of our service times. Above all, you may be listening today, and maybe you've never made a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, that's the greatest decision anyone can ever make in this life. Too many folks prepare for vacation. They prepare for retirement. They seem to prepare for everything, but sad to say, many make no preparations for eternity. The reality is very clear. We all will leave this world someday. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. You must understand that you are guilty before a holy God. Romans 3.23 said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 53 and verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You must understand that your good words, good works and good deeds will not get you to heaven. Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible said, Therefore by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You must understand that you are loved. I'm thankful that in John 3 and verse 16, it said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5 and verse 8 declares, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You must understand and realize there's only one way to stand right before God. There's not many ways, there's only one. Jesus said in John 14 and verse number 6, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, the apostles' message was very simple. There in Acts chapter 4, in verse number 12, they said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. You might ask the question, Preacher, how can I be saved? That's what the Philippian jailer asked in Acts chapter 16, verse 30 and 31. He asked Paul and Silas, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Romans 10, 9 said that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You must ask God to save you. I can't do it. No one can do it for you. Romans 10, 13 said, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you know you're a sinner, and if you're sorry for your sin, and you believe Jesus died for your sins, you simply have to ask him to save you. And I say, Preacher, how can I know for sure God will hear me? But first of all, the Bible tells us that we must be drawn. John 6 and verse 44, Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father which had sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Psalm 51 and verse 17 gives us the attitude we need to have when we come to God. 
It said there the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. If God draws you by conviction, if you're sorry for your sin, you repent of them. If you believe Jesus died for your sins, and if you asked him to save you, then the Bible declares you've been saved. If you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you've been forgiven of all your sin. Romans 8, 1 declares, There is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Once a person has been saved, they need to be a part of a fundamental Bible-believing church where they can grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. God calls us out of darkness and commands us to walk in light after we've been saved by His marvelous grace. If we can help you here at Faith Community Baptist Church in any way, feel free to contact us. If you have asked God to save you, please contact us, and we will send you some free literature to help you in your newfound life in Christ. Thank you again for listening to our CD ministry that's been provided by our church here, and may God richly bless you and your family is our prayer.